Well, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, that'll be our syntext this morning. We're still going through 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 25 as our reading, but we're going to look in the sermon at verses 19 through 21. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Give ear to the word of God this morning, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Um, we're going to read 17 through 25. Paul writes, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the, the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Uh, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also the good works uh, are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. The sins the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let's pray to God might bless his word to us this morning. Let's, uh, let's pray. O oh Lord our God, uh, we ask this morning, we know that we, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. And so we ask that you would have mercy upon us and teach us your word this morning. Work in us by your Holy Spirit, that which is pleasing in your sight. That We ask that you might open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things from your law, that you would enlarge our hearts, that we might run in the way of your testimonies. And we ask that you would renew our minds and transform our lives for the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, last Sunday, if you were here, we started to look at this, this section uh, where Paul deals with how the church is to treat uh, our elders and pastors who have been set apart by God to serve in the ministry in the church. Uh, it's a, not a really long section, uh, if you think about it in some ways, but he does go in this section, go into a number of things in detail. Uh, we saw last week how we are to care as the church uh, for the uh, material needs of our ministers in verses 17 through 18. And he gives us a couple reasons for that. One of them was an Old Testament text from Deuteronomy where he says the ox, you know, do not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then he quotes Jesus in Luke chapter 10 when he says the laborer deserves his wages. Well, this morning in verses 19 through 21, uh, Paul briefly instructs us, very briefly really, uh, instructs us how the church is not only to care for the material needs of her elders and pastors, but also how to care for and guard the reputation of their pastors and elders in a godly way. If you remember, if you were here uh, with us months ago, we looked at chapter 3 of this book. Uh, you might remember that the primary qualification, other than the desire for the office and the work of it, the primary qualification for an elder, uh, what does Paul say it is? He says in verse 2, he must be what? Above reproach. Everything else that follows is an, ex is an expansion on what that means. When he talks about the elder's family life, his marriage, his children, everything else, his temperament, all that, all those things are an aspect of that uh, aspect of that one chief qualification, and that is he must be above reproach or blameless. And it's not just if you remember that text in chapter three, it's not just blameless within the church, is it? 
What does he say later on? He says uh, in verse 7 that he must be an elder, one who would be an elder must be what? Well thought of by outsiders, by those outside the church. Why? So that he might not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And so a godly man's reputation for godliness is to be a, a primary consideration and qualification in considering somebody for the office of elder or of deacon. But for the same reason as that, the godly reputation of a pastor or elder has to be maintained and guarded, not just by the man himself persevering in faith and godliness by the grace of God, oh, that's the chief thing, but also by how the church and especially his fellow elders handle accusations made against him that would tarnish that reputation and hinder his effectiveness and even sometimes destroy that effectiveness in ministry. You might, you might think that godliness somehow prevents false accusations. It does not. If you read your Bible, read the accounts all through scriptures, you'll know that godliness does not prevent accusations of sin or wrongdoing. Sometimes those accusations are false and slanderous. Other times, where there is smoke, what does the old saying say? Where there is smoke, there is fire. In other words, sometimes these accusations are slanderous, but sometimes there really is sin and scandal that has to be dealt with. You know, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, uh, I dare say you have probably seen uh, a number of examples of, of such a thing. And both these things, of both kinds, false accusations as well as true ones. And both kinds are harmful to the peace and purity of Christ's church. So what Paul does here, very briefly, he gives us kind of a summary of it in some ways. Paul gives us instructions on how to handle both. How do you handle in the church a slanderous accusation or an unsubstantiated accusation of sin? And how to handle substantiated ones, ones that are borne witness to by two or three witnesses. You know, we in the church, I think, if we would take these things to heart and do it well, uh, we would be sure to judge these kinds of things justly in a way that pleases God and really protects and preserves the purity and peace of the church. And so we're going to look at at least three things this morning, Lord willing, from our text. We're going to see first, rejecting slanderous accusations. Second, rebuking sinning elders. And third, resisting prejudice and partiality. So the first thing that Paul does here in verse 19 is he basically instructs us to reject slanderous or unsubstantiated accusations against our elders or pastors. Look at verse 19. He says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, uh, sometimes I'll bring up things from the, the Greek text, the original text here. Um, in this particular case, the words in our English, against an elder, in the Greek text, they're emphatic. It would be bad sentence structure in English for us to try to duplicate the order of the words in the sentence. But what he's basically saying is, here's how the sentence reads in Greek. Against an elder, do not receive an accusation. Against an elder is the first thing he says in the sentence. It's, we say it's emphatic. He's, it's, they don't have italics in bold print. That's how they emphasize something, sometimes by putting it First, even where you normally wouldn't have it in a sentence uh, sometimes. So against an elder, do not receive such an accusation. Um, now, the point here is not somehow that, you know, Paul is not saying, well, if you're not an elder, then all bets are off and you can have an accusation and receive it. He's just making the point that in, a, in particular, the elder is more subject to very, very often false accusations and it must be 
dealt with carefully. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, your reputation, everyone's reputation in the church should be guarded and protected. Paul's not saying anything different, but he is just pointing out that there's a particular danger for those in office of being accused of things without, uh, without cause. And uh, there are many who would bear false witness against them who might accuse them, God's elders, of things without proof. John Calvin, no less, writes this. He says, It is necessary to guard against the malice of men in this way, for none are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. He says, This comes not only from the difficulty of their duties, which are so great that sometimes they sink under them or stagger or halt or take a false step so that the wicked may find uh, many accusations of finding fault with them. In other words, sometimes things do happen. And because of the weight of the work, you, you misstep and somebody's always waiting for that misstep. But then he says, but added to that, even when they do all their duties correctly and commit not even the smallest error, they never avoid a thousand criticisms. It is a trick of Satan to estrange men from their ministers so as gradually to bring their teaching into contempt. You see, you see the trick that he says Satan is, is doing and still does, not just in Calvin's day, but in our own. He finds ways to make you hold your elders a little bit less highly in esteem. He, he finds ways to get you to think poorly and poorly and poorly of them, sometimes without any cause. And what's the result? He doesn't care about how you think of the elders. He cares how you think of the message being preached or taught. And, and it's, it is, it's a sobering thing for me to think about as a pastor, but it's, it's practically impossible to separate the preacher from the preaching. So how you view the preacher affects how you view the preaching. You can't help but do that. Now, certainly all believers are in some general sense the target of the evil one. But we have to know, I think, I don't think it takes much effort to, to realize that faithful elders and pastors of Christ's church have a little bit larger target on our backs. You know, Paul says as much back in 1 Timothy 3, 7 when he says what? He warns of, quote, the snare of the devil in, in, in regard to the reputation of elders or pastors or overseers. He warns about a new convert falling into the snare, the trap of, of the devil if they get to office too soon. Now, just as Paul quoted last week, we saw Paul, Paul quoted uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, about not muzzling the ox when it, when it treads out the grain. Even so here, he doesn't quote it, but he also refers another time to the book of Deuteronomy, when he instructs us how we are to handle accusations against an elder in the church. You might know that in, in Jesus' temptation in, in the wilderness, when, when Satan tempted him in the wilderness three times, Satan tempted Christ, and what did Christ do? He quoted scripture back. Do you know what book Jesus quoted from all three times? You might never guess it. Deuteronomy. If I were to ask you, when's the last time you read Deuteronomy or studied it or, or found it edifying, uh, I bet most of us probably would shrug our shoulders and say, well, Jesus quoted from it re repeatedly. Paul quotes from it in this context. Repeatedly, there's many things in that book for us, as in all scripture there are, for us to learn from. We should take that to heart. Now, when, when Paul says that we must not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, and that word evidence is really the word testimony. It's, it, it's really testimony is a better translation of that. The testimony of two or three witnesses. He's pointing us back to Deuteronomy 19.15. And here's what it says back then. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime 
or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Now, notice the language here. He's talking about big things. He's not talking about somebody offending your sensibilities. He's not talking about somebody going against whatever your preferences may be or something. Um, it's not that kind of thing. He's talking about charges. In this case, civil charges, but the same thing. Paul uses that same uh, commandment in regard to the courts of the church, which in some ways are very similar. Uh, certainly the concern here is, is with the possibility or even likelihood of false witness or slander. You know, in the Ten Commandments, we read uh, the Ten Commandments every first Sunday of the month, and one of them is, thou shalt not bear what? False witness. And I don't know about you, but my brain just immediately translates that into do not lie. And that's right. I mean, it does mean, it does include not lying, but why does it say false witness? Why does that commandment framed? Why doesn't it just say don't lie? You ever wonder that? That's how I think of it. That's maybe how you think. But why does it not just say, thou shalt not lie? It says, thou shalt not bear false witness. One of the reasons for it is to emphasize how damaging it can be. Witness is a courtroom word. It's courtroom imagery. And when you bear false witness in a courtroom, on a trial, on a capital trial, what can happen? Somebody could die. You could put someone's life in jeopardy by bearing false witness. That's the reason for that commandment. One person might have enough malice to make something up, even something that serious. But to get two or three, that's a little bit harder to do. Um, in fact, in that very passage, we are taught, if you I won't read it to you this morning, but I'll, you can look it up, Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 and following. There's a punishment prescribed in that passage for the person who bears false witness, false witness in a court of law. And you know what it is? They are to receive the same punishment as the crime they committed, the, that they, they accused the other person of. Think about that. If you were found, scripturally, if you were found to bear false witness in a murder trial, in a capital offense, and you were proven to be bearing false witness, what happened to you? You were executed. That's what the law required. That might give people pause from slandering and from false accusations. That's what the law prescribed. That's a pretty serious thing. That's how seriously God takes false witness and slander. I dare say we'd see far fewer accusations and slander of that kind if we took the counsel of God's word to heart in these things. God, God takes slander and false witness very, very seriously. And notice that Paul says in verse 19, he tells us the word is really receive. We are not even to receive an accusation without two or three witnesses. If it's not supported by two or three witnesses, those kind of charges are not to be admitted or pursued by the leadership of the church. Again, we're talking about charges. We're not talking about compl minor complaints and things like that. But anything that would rise to a charge of immoral failing should be supported by more than one witness. Now, now think about this. The Bible has a lot of passages that talk about these kinds of things. And one of the main ones you might know is in Matthew chapter 18. And Matthew chapter 18 does not contradict this passage, nor does this passage in any way go against that. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17 says this. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. There's step one, right? If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, what do you do? If he does not listen, you take one or two others along with you. And here it is 
that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. He's basically quoting Deuteronomy 19.15. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Treat them as an unbeliever, as someone outside of the church. Notice that it goes beyond, if it goes past one-on-one, that's where it's supposed to start. You know, very often in the church, what we, what we do is we turn the whole thing on its head, right? We, we throw a hand grenade in the church. We tell the whole church first, and then we tell somebody else. Then if it gets down to it and we're forced to, we tell them one-on-one, and we've already done the damage. Jesus says, no, do it this way. Tell them one-on-one, then bring others, and then if it still doesn't work, you bring it to the church um, but in, in talking about that, Jesus quotes and refers to Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. We would all do well, I think, to consider the, the, the words of the shorter catechism. You know, if you, if you have a copy, if you don't have a copy, see me after the service. We will put one in your hands. Uh, but the shorter catechism has a section that goes through the Ten Commandments. And here's what it says about the Ninth Commandment, which is to not bear false witness. Uh, question 77, what is required actively required in the ninth commandment. The ninth commandment requires the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man. And here it is. And of our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness bearing. We are to actively seek the preservation of our own good name and that of, of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, Number 78, what is forbidden? There's two sides of each commandment. What's what you're not supposed to do and what you are. What's forbidden in the Ninth Commandment? The Ninth Commandment forbids whatever is prejudicial to the truth and injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. We were to take that to heart. How many less conversations will we have behind someone's back, right? We are to, it it forbids whatever is prejudicial to the truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. So we, we are required to be careful to protect the good name and godly reputation of everyone in the church, but of the elders and pastors, I think, uh, even more. Protect them from unjust accusations. You know, there are, there are many, if you don't know this, you will learn this, there are many, uh, not just outside the church, which is obvious, but also sometimes inside the visible church as well, who seem to make it their aim to accuse the brethren. And the internet and social media has just made this worse and worse. I have seen, if you are not on uh, Facebook and Twitter, God bless you, uh, don't feel the need to go on them, but I have seen too many people that seem to have uh, marked out a so-called ministry for themselves of accusation. They go around looking for dirt on various evangelical pastors, and they, they are not, they're not shy about posting these things. Sometimes they are outright slander, uh, and it's a, a horrible thing to see. Um, so the Internet has not, uh, it, it may have many good uses, but one of the things it has done, it's made slander far more, far more uh, common and commonplace than it should be. Well, the second thing, there's, there's another side to this coin, not just rejecting slanderous accusations. Paul also goes into rebuking sinning elders in verse 20. You know, there, there's a lot more we could say about slanderous accusations, but the second point is just as important. He tells us here, in brief, how we are to deal with elders and pastors who actually are caught in unrepentant sin. And what does he say in verse 20? We are to rebuke them publicly. Publicly. You sure you want to be an elder or a pastor? You're like, you can rebuke publicly for, for, <laughs> Robin's like, I went out, I quit. 
Look at verse 20. It says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. There's no, there's no kid gloves here. John Stott puts it this way, puts it very well. He says, verses 19 and 20 then belong together. Timothy must neither listen to frivolous accusations nor refuse to take serious situations seriously. Both kinds will come up over time. That's the way it always is. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves here, we have to be clear about one thing. Uh, we should be clear about the reality uh, of elders and pastors sinning in grievous ways at times. Paul is not speaking hypothetically here. He's not telling Timothy in this very short letter, there's no filler here. Paul's not saying, this will never happen, but, you know, just in case, in the, you know, the million to one shot, something happens, here's what you do. He says, as for those who persist in sin, what's he doing? He's practically saying, you know, this is going to happen, right? Every accusation is not going to be a false one, sad to say. As bad as those are, these, this kind happens as well. He's not talking in hypotheticals. It's sad to say, if you have been a believer in Christ for any length of time, you have probably known of elders and pastors, maybe more than one, who have fallen into grievous sins, bringing scandal upon the church. We just had a presbytery meeting yesterday, uh, and in, in recent years we have had to depose at least three men from office for scandalous sin. This isn't some hypothetical. It's not something that never happens. We have to be on guard for these things. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, you have probably seen this happen, if not in some church out there that you know of, maybe even in your own in your own church. You know, now, now think about this. Many of these men met the biblical qualifications for elders. Some of them don't. You know, many churches in our day disregard 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. But you have to assume many of them actually met the qualifications for, for office as taught in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. They were blameless and above reproach, and yet they still sinned. And, and sin, when Paul says sin here, he's talking about grievous sin, scandalous sin, not minor things, not things that... You know, we, you, you hear of it and you go, well, who doesn't do that? Who, who hasn't done that, you know, wrong? He's talking about real sin, not just a, a fence of somebody's sensibilities. Um, and so you, you don't need to hear me say this, but it, it kind of has to be said. In case you weren't aware of this, all elders and pastors are sinners. Not past tense, not were, not used to be. We are all sinners without exception. All elders and pastors, are, are we sanctified? If we're believers, yes, absolutely. But we're still sinners in this life. We are still in Romans 7, just like the rest of you in that regard. We are still sinners. Our expectations for elders and pastors, and even for pastors' children, frankly, uh, should be reasonable. Blameless does not mean sinless. Uh, blameless is not what that means. But some sins rise to the level of scandalous offense and they have to be dealt with in a biblical way. Notice even in this passage, uh, this passage here that Paul brings up, it's also keeping in, you know, in keeping with Jesus' instructions in Matthew chapter 18. You know, Paul doesn't say that we are to publicly, you know, publicly rebuke our elders every time they sin. You'd be always rebuking your elders. You would never have peace and purity in the church, and your elders wouldn't be elders very long. We'd all quit, right? He says, those who persist in sin. It's a, here's your grammar lesson, it's a present tense participle. In other words, it, it implies, 
it really means it's an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing problem. It means also the man is unrepentant. The person you're rebuking publicly are those who are refusing to repent when confronted with actual sin in their life, even after being confronted and admonished privately. The hope is always that it doesn't get that far. The hope is that the admonishment brings repentance uh, before it gets that far, but sometimes uh, that's where it goes. You know, private sins, it's always said private sins warrant private admonishment in most cases. Public sins, though, have to be dealt with publicly. There's no sweeping it under the rug. There's no hiding it, no rail, you know, circling the wagons uh, to kind of cover these things up. And that's for the peace and the purity and well-being of the church. And notice that Paul says we must rebuke the unrepentant in the presence of all. And why is that? It doesn't give you every reason. So the rest may fear. Who is the rest? Paul doesn't really spell that out. Is it just the rest of the elders? It's probably everybody. You know, when you see one of your leaders rebuked in front of all for sin, uh, the effect is to make us all take a step back and look in the mirror and look at our own lives and, and be uh, walking in fear in a good way, in the fear of God, knowing that God judges these things. And very often God judges and, and shows his judgments in the life of a church. What does he use to do it? The keys of the kingdom, the church courts, by which the, the leaders of the church, his elders, bind and loose things here on earth in his church. But, but this is to, it's to serve as a deterrent from sin. Church discipline has many functions and many purposes. You know, it, it's the peace and purity of the church. It's God's glory. It's the restoration of the sinner. But one of the, one of the reasons for it is it's a deterrent. It's a deterrent from the same kind of sin spreading in the church. Now, what does this tell us about the damage that's often done to the flock when the elders or pastors of a church are sometimes permitted to sin with impunity. What do you think happens when that kind of a thing is allowed to go on? That kind of sin will surely multiply. The Bible uses the idea of leaven or, or yeast. It spreads throughout the whole lump. That's one of the reasons that the, the exercise of church discipline is said to be one of the three marks of the true church. Ever since the Belgic Confession, and maybe earlier than that, we, we've, uh, one of the things the Reformed churches have held to is there's three, three identifying characteristics or marks of the true church of Jesus Christ. And what are they? The faithful preaching of the word of God, preaching and teaching of God's word, the right administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And what's the third one? The right exercise of church discipline. There's something you don't put in any ads in the paper for get people to come to your church. We discipline. But it's one of the, if without it, you're not a church. You're not a true church of Christ if you don't have church discipline. And I dare say uh, many churches, there is no semblance of discipline in them. And when you allow, especially the elders of a church, to sin with impunity, bad things happen and sin just spreads. When the church fails to discipline or disciple its members, especially her officers, everything breaks down and the leaven of sin leavens the whole lump. Anyway, and if, and if we don't judge, God will. Where does, where does judgment begin? The Bible says judgment begins with the household of God. And if God's elders won't do what they're supposed to do, it very often happens that God steps in, the Lord Jesus Christ steps in and does it himself in various, in various ways. He will not let his church be handled that way. And so, you know, we, we can't treat our elders or pastors 
uh, in one of two ways. You know, very often they're treated in some of the larger churches, but not just that large churches, but they're treated as too big to fail and too important for the sake of their kingdom work. How many, see, how many times have you read, even in recent months and years, of a well-known evangelical pastor or parachurch leader caught in scandal and you find out it's been going on for 10 years? And why do they not let it get out? Because they think the personality, the person, is too important. They've built, sometimes you build a ministry on the personality of one individual, and so that individual becomes irreplaceable. And you can't let anything touch him. You can't let anybody touch the Lord's anointed, so to speak, in that regard. And is, they may be successful. They may have big numbers. They may have money pouring in. Is God pleased with that? Does God need the famous pastor or celebrity pastor? or minute? No. He, he uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. He doesn't need he doesn't need me, doesn't need you, doesn't need anybody. Didn't need Billy Graham, didn't need uh, John Calvin, didn't need Martin Luther. He used them, but he didn't need them and never does. And we have to be careful not to treat our pastors as too big to fail or too big to be disciplined for the sake of their work. You know, very often churches and Christian organizations, uh, what, we, what we do at times is we enable wolves in the pulpit by doing that. And that should not be the case uh, that's not good for the sheep, for the flock of God's church. And it brings disgrace upon the church uh, when we do that. And why does that happen? Because we, we see men as somehow indispensable to God's kingdom or to our own little kingdoms. If we let this get out, our little kingdom we've built, we, you find out that you're not really about God's kingdom at all. You're about your own little kingdom, your own little thing that you've built. And sometimes that leads to bad things. Well, The third thing that Paul brings up in our text in verse 21 is that uh, in all these things, both handling false accusations as well as true ones, we are to resist the temptation to the, the, the twin sins, so to speak, of prejudice and partiality. Look at verse 21. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these things or these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. To do nothing with partiality. Now look, look again how balanced the Bible is in these things. Remember last time we saw uh, that there were two extremes we are to avoid when it comes to paying our pastors uh, and, and elders. And what were those extremes? Miserliness and excess. You know, we, we want the pastor in the poorhouse or, hey, he should have everything. We are to avoid both, both of those things. Those things are not to be uh, the way we do things. Well, here Paul says kind of the same thing. You are to avoid prejudice on the one hand and partiality on the other. Both those things are wrong and are to be avoided. You know, we are not to be respecters of persons. We are not to be swayed by unjust accusations uh, against our elders and pastors in such a way uh, that they are untouchable or unaccountable. We have to be concerned with justice and with the truth and with the peace and purity of God's church to, to prejudge. We get the word prejudice from it. Maybe you don't use that word very often, or at least in this kind of a context. But what, is, what does prejudice mean? It means to prejudge, to decide something ahead of time before the facts come in. You know, the book of Proverbs, for example, talks about, this isn't a quote, but you know, the first one to speak is always, always sounds right. But the wise person listens to both sides of, the, of these kinds of things. We have to hear all the facts and all the witnesses. We don't jump to conclusions and sometimes we jump to conclusions because we don't like someone. We aren't, we aren't predisposed to like them or think well of them. And so we hear a bad report and what do you do? I, I, I dare say we've all done this. 
oh, that's, that's believable. That's probably true, and it may not be true. We are not to prejudge or show prejudice. To, to show partiality is kind of the opposite polar extreme and, and polar opposite sin. It's to ignore the facts and essentially rule in favor of someone because you do like them or because they are important to you. Both, both extremes are wrong and to be avoided. You know, there are, there are two things that we are to, to, two kind of things we are to kind of uh, have be our guideposts in a sense. You know, there is a sense, you know, the, the idea, remember David when, when, Saul, when Saul was chasing him around and David had been anointed the king. And, you know, if it was us, we'd have been with David saying, hey, you have a chance, kill Saul. Remember why he wouldn't kill Saul? He would not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, you might say to yourself, yeah, but God rejected him. You're the Lord's anointed, David. God anointed you by Samuel to be the king. He rejected Saul, but Saul was still in, in, in power. He was still the king. And so David had chances to kill him and never did. And he said, far be it for me to what? To touch the Lord, to even lay a finger on him. Remember, he cut a little piece of his robe inside that one cave and showed it to him to prove, I could have killed you. And he felt grieved about it because he cut part of his clothing just to, to prove a point. So there is, there is something of that. But think about this. There's also the prophet Nathan. And when it was a just thing, what did Nathan do with King David of all people? He didn't say, oh, he's the Lord's anointed. I, I can't say anything to David. He was sent as God's prophet to rebuke him and said, you're the man. Remember the story? There's a man who had a little ewe lamb, and there was a rich man with all these lambs, and, and then the rich man took the one, killed it. I'm paraphrasing. And then David was angry. As surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. And then Nathan held the mirror up, and he said, you're the, you're the man. Both those things are, are found in Scripture. Both those things are to be our, our boundaries, so to speak. And that's why Paul charges Timothy and us as well. Notice the wording here. What does he say in verse 21? In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. He does that elsewhere in the next, the next book. When he tells Timothy to preach the word, he charges him in, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. He's saying, like, it's a vow. He's putting, kind of putting a vow. You know, we take vows. He's putting one on Timothy. I'm charging you. Here's what you have to do to obey God. That in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, even of the elect angels to keep all these things the way he tells them. And so what does that tell us? If we're conscious of the fact that all we do in all these things is done in the sight of God, it's done in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the king and only head of the church, and even in the sight of the holy angels who are preserved in holiness by God's electing grace, we will be delivered from the fear of man in our judgments in the church. In other words, you know, there, there is a, um, there's two, there's always two sides, right? You might look at someone in the church, a pastor or an elder, and be in such fear of man regarding them that you, you just won't deal with something. Oh, but this is the pastor, this is the elder. And, what, and think about it. Timothy was a young pastor. These elders in his church were probably all much older than him, to say the least, where Paul had to tell Timothy, don't let anybody despise your youth, Right? He's telling Timothy, don't let any of that sway you to the left or to the right. Look at God. You are doing all these things as a pastor, as an elder, in the sight of God, in the sight of Jesus Christ, and even in the sight of the elect angels. Fear them, and if you fear them, 
You won't fear man. You'll be delivered from partiality. You'll be delivered from prejudice. You'll be more mindful of what you are doing uh, is done in sight of God. If we're mindful of the glory and majesty of God and of his Son, who is the Lord of glory, we, will not, we won't fail to seek to do what's right. We'll entrust ourselves to the just judgment of God and not be swayed either for or against someone unjustly, no matter who they are. Not only that, but if we're more, we're mindful that everything we do as a church and as individual believers is done in the presence and in the view of the triune God and Savior, how much more mischief and sin and scandal would be avoided in the church. May we seek to please Christ in all these things, who is the head of the church, who purchased the church with his own blood. Uh, to him be the glory forever. Let's, let's pray.